I was so proud uh, last weekend um, to say that I passed your generation, um, to see what you guys did. And last weekend was a reminder to me, again, I always need this reminder, that the mission is about people. And uh, we can get caught up in doing things for people, and sometimes we just forget the need and the importance to just sit and, and to connect relationally. And that happened last weekend, and so uh, I just I celebrated with you guys. Thank you all who participated, and uh, Jake and I were talking this past week, uh, be watching for some things and moving towards the fall of trying to help you take another step. Like, yes, you connect with your neighbors, but, but, now, uh, but now what's next? And so we gathered last weekend uh, in the street in order to bring the love of God. Like, we can't say that we are like Jesus if we don't live the life Jesus lived. And Jesus routinely hung with and loved people who were far from him. And in fact, Jesus said the greatest evidence of uh, that we're his followers in John 13, 35, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. The greatest indicator that you're a disciple of Jesus is not the church you go to, is not the ministry team you serve on. The greatest evidence that you are a follower of Jesus is love for one another. Like that's what Jesus commanded us to do. Jesus commanded us to love to love people who are easy to love. Like if you think about it, like people who are easy to love, like our friends, our friends are pretty easy to love. Our, our, for some of you, uh, especially that come from close-knit families, family's easy to love. It's easy to love people who have similar interests than you. It's easy to, to love people who are kind of go with the flow. I'm really not, so that's why I enjoy being around people who are, like who are like, hey, just tell us what to do and we'll do what you wanna do. Like I find it really, e those are easier people uh, to connect with. It's easy to love people who, are slow drivers but get in the right lane uh, driving down the highway. It's easy to love people who say thank you when you hold the door for them. It's easy to, to love people who look like us, act like us, believe and value the things that we believe and value. But Jesus said our love for the world uh, or our love for each other will be evidence to the world that we're his followers, not just by the way we love those that we like, those that are easy to love, but also the way in which we love people who are more difficult. Now, I don't know about you, but my list of people who are easy to love is pretty short. My list of people who are difficult to love is pretty long. Like I could go through and start talking about people that are difficult to love, like people who are late. Like those of you that came in late for the service are like hiding your heads right now. Uh, but people who are late, like vegans. You ever hung around with a vegan? Like they're not the easiest. They can't go to all these restaurants you can't go to, things you can't do. Uh, people who ask questions during a movie. Like I'll watch a movie. My mom used to do this all the time. We're in the theater together. We're see, it's the release day of the movie. We're, I'm watching it for the first time too, and she's asking me questions about the plot. And I'm like, I'm trying to, like, stop talking. I'm trying to figure that out. Like, so people who talk during movies, people who chew loudly. Like, people like that, you know, man, those are more difficult to love. How about people who have betrayed us? People who have slandered us. People who have attacked us and people who have hurt us. And you go, man, the list of people who are easy to love, I'm tracking in the conversation. But when you start to talk about people who have attacked us, betrayed us, hurt us, it becomes a much different conversation, doesn't it? But I read this quote uh, this past week. The true test of love is not loving Jesus, it's loving Judas. Like our ability to love the people that we aren't like, the people that we don't like, the people who hurt us, that truly is the evidence to the world around us because the world in which we live doesn't function that way. And so Paul talks about love in Romans chapter 12. 
As we've moved into to verse 9, where we're going to pick it up today, he's talked about living as a living sacrifice. He's talked about allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our minds. He's talked about serving one another. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then he transitions a, a continued conversation. He shifts gears and goes and he says, all right, now let's talk about love. He says in verse 9, he says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. So he's going to give us three things, but, but verse 9, like, like think of an umbrella, like it's rainy today. Uh, think of an umbrella, and you've got all of those little like stems or, or tentacles under the umbrella, but you've got that overarching uh, sheet of fabric. Like that's verse 9. Everything that is said beyond verse 9, all is under this umbrella, this protective umbrella of verse 9. This sort of sets the tone, and he gives us three things to be aware of. He says, number one, let your love, don't pretend to love others, but really love them. And then number two, hate what is wrong. And number three, hold tightly to what is good. So he says the first thing about love is that, is that love is sincere. The word, when he says don't just pretend, the word, the original word that's used there is the word that means hypocritical. So what he's saying is, is don't be hypocritical in your love for one another. The word hypocrite was an acting term. It meant to wear a mask. So in the first century acting scene, actors, a lot of, a lot of the programs they would put on, they wouldn't even talk. It would all be done with visually. And so they would take masks to represent different emotions. So you'd have to wear a mask that would depict anger. And so the people watching would know whatever he's doing, he's angry. Or maybe it would be, maybe it would be happiness. So it would be, you know, lighthearted or whatever. And so Paul is making this point and he's saying, don't be like the people in the acting community that wear a mask that depict one thing, but underneath there something completely different. And I think that accurately describes the way a lot of our relationships function today. We're one thing to people's face, but we're another thing behind their back. We go through the motions, we say the right things, we, we pretend to care, but really, we don't. I think churches today, especially churches in the South, we've become really good at becoming a place of phony love. Like the smile and the sweet words, the warmth, the politeness even an expressed desire to be helpful. But behind that facade is, is a spirit of jealousy, of hostility. There's backbiting. And Paul says, don't pretend to love one another. Instead, love each other with genuine love. And I'll be honest with you, that creates some tension for me. It probably creates tension for you too. Because I get it, it is hypocritical to act lovingly and yet despise someone. But it's also unrealistic to wait for my heart to feel genuine love before, before I act. So, like, so, so what do we do with that? If we wait for our feelings, we're never going to act. Well, a couple things. Number one, uh, the gospel teaches us to live a different way. Romans 1 through 11, all that has done is taught us what we believe. It's given us truths to, to build our lives on. So Romans 1 through 11 explains all of the things that you and I didn't deserve that we got because of Jesus the love that we didn't deserve when we were enemies, Christ died, like all those things. Like it reminds us of who we were and where we would be without Jesus. So that, get, that helps, gives us some perspective. Like preach the truth of the gospel over your lives and then do loving things all the while repenting of the sinful condition of our hearts along the way. But then the second thing is we need to get a better understanding of the word love. Because in our culture, love is, is predominantly a word that's based on feeling. Like when I say I love someone, what it means is I probably feel something towards them, right? And so, so it's all based on the feels. If I feel loving towards you, then I'm going to act lovingly 
on your behalf. But the word, the Greek word, but also the Hebrew word that is used for love is the word that means charity, which has nothing to do with feeling. It has everything to do with action. It was a word that meant, that was used to describe specifically caring for those in need. It's a word that focused on action rather than our feelings. You could define it this way. This is what I would say. Christ-like love is a willful, selfless decision to act, to show good to those around me, regardless of how I feel and regardless of how they act. So it's a decision to act. It's a choice to act. Love is not a feeling. Love is, is an act of the will. It's a willing decision to do something for the benefit of someone else. So it reshapes the way we view love. So if that's the case, I don't even have to like you to love you. If that's the case, I don't even have to know you to love you. Remember Jesus, with the, when the man came to him and said, Jesus said, love your neighbor, and the, the, the man said, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story about a man who was beaten and attacked, and then another man, a Samaritan man, who was his enemy, came along and cared for him. And at the end, Jesus said, which one of these would you say was his neighbor? And he said, the one who showed him pity, the one who showed him mercy the one who stopped and cared, the one who was active. So in that story, the Samaritan loved a man that he didn't even know, loved a man that was his enemy, because love had nothing to do with how he felt. It was a decision to do based on what he believed. And so when you redefine love, when you get a better understanding of the word love, it really reshapes the way we view this entire conversation. And so he says, let your love, let your selfless acts of service to one another, let them be genuine. Like, don't, don't pretend be genuine. And then he says, also, love hates what is wrong, which I think is, is important because it, it starts to create some necessary boundaries in the conversation. Because oftentimes when we talk about love, we, we talk about love in the sense of, oh, it means we approve of everything. We don't speak up about anything. We tolerate abuse in a relationship. You know, it's just the cross I bear. It's what Jesus would do. But it says here that love hates what is wrong. The word hate literally means to be horrified by something. Think about something that, that horrifies you. Would you coexist with that? If something horrified you, would you speak up about it? Would you share space with something you were horrified by? Ladies, if your husband came home and said, I'm going to have a girlfriend... You're like, oh, I'll have her over for dinner. Like, I, I love you, so I don't want to say anything that would potentially hurt you. No, you would speak up, right? You're like, I'm not sharing my space with her. This past uh, couple of weeks ago, um, I went to wash my hands in the bathroom over here, and right as I turn on the sink, a mouse runs out from behind the trash can. And it's trying to get under the door, and I'm trying to get on that changing table in the bathroom because <laughs> I want no part of it. And so eventually, which a couple of things, number one, that's why I don't wash my hands. Every time I wash my hands, something bad happens. And so I'm like, no, we're not doing that anymore. So finally, it can't get out, it can't get under the door, so it runs back behind the trash can. So then I race out of there, and I find Eric, who does buildings and grounds, and Jen, who is way tougher than I am. And I'm like, there's a mouse in the bathroom. And Jen's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, there's two options. We can kill it or we can burn the building down. Like that, like th those are the only two options. Jen's like, what if we catch it and redistribute it? I'm like, that's fine in eternity. Like when it's dead, he can do whatever he wants there. But, we're, but, but for me, I'm like, we are not coexisting with a mouse. Like it, and we killed it, it's dead. I didn't kill it, but they killed it. Um, it's dead. 
But Ramey and Jen were like, oh, I feel so bad. Like, why couldn't? I'm like, they'd have a petting zoo in here if I'd let them. But I'm like, we're not keeping the mouse. Like, the mouse has got to go. I'm not going to share space with it. And, you know, in, in our lives, it says love hates what is wrong. What that means is that we don't share space with things that we know are not in step with the gospel. It means that I don't allow others to sin against me. I don't allow others to sin against themselves or against anyone else. True love doesn't tolerate things like abuse, doesn't allow abuse, injustice, or suffering to go unchecked. When we see something that is out of step with the gospel, it bothers us enough to address it. We have to love each other enough to speak truth, to be, uh, to, um, to be horrified by what is evil, by what is wrong, and instead cling to what is good and what is right. The word cling is the same word that's used when it talks about a man and a woman uh, becoming one flesh. They're joined together. Take two pieces of paper and glue them together and a month from now, go try to take them apart. You're going to leave remnants of each piece of paper on the other like they've become one. That for you and I, we are horrified by what is evil and what is wrong. And instead, we cling to what is good. We look to what is good. We point each other to what is good. We point each other to becoming more and more like Jesus. So love stands for the truth. It stands against deception. It clings to the truth. And as we cling to the truth, we point one another to it. So verse nine is setting the tone, right? We're, our love is genuine. Our love hates what is wrong and it clings to what is good. And then now for the rest of these verses, we're gonna move a little bit quicker. As we move through them, I want you to, to do something later. I want you to go home and I want you to reread this passage. And with a, with a better understanding of what love means and with that umbrella of verse nine over it, I want you to ask yourself some questions as you walk through it. Ask the question, am I living this out of my life? Like, 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 am I reflecting the things that he's talking about here? Because he's giving us some examples. Like this type of love that he's described, he says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Genuine love, that word means brotherly love. It means family. The gospel makes us family. It's such a beautiful picture of this, especially uh, large families that are, that, are, that are close families. When they come together for like a holiday meal and there's, you know, 30, 40 people around a table, and if you, if you could pan away from that and, and look, you would see people that under no circumstances would ever gather at that table together. They've got nothing in common. There's only one thing that brings them together, and that one thing being family is strong enough to overcome all of the things that would separate them, all of the differences that they have, and they celebrate together because they are family. And that's a picture of what the gospel does for us. The gospel makes us family. That we come together as family and we practice unity among diversity. He says to, to, to honor, take delight in honoring each other. That means to put each other uh, first. Genuine love is sacrificial. Serving is our privilege. That's what we say, that we serve one another with a nothing beneath me mentality. And when you link love and serving together, you say we, we serve one another with a nothing beneath me mentality. There's nothing beneath me because the gospel has taught me that there's no one beneath me. So whatever I'm doing, whoever I'm doing it for, they matter enough, they are valued enough that, that I'm willing to, to elevate them and lower myself in order to serve them because that's what love demands of us. That's what love calls us to do. Verse 11 and 12, remember in the context of relationships and love, he says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. 
Rejoice in our, in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Never be lazy, but work hard. In the context of relationships and loving one another, relationships are hard. They take work. Relationships are, are messy. I love that. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Sometimes the word that best describes relational conflict for us is we go, man, that relationship is just troubling. But the gospel reminds us that we don't give up on each other because the gospel is working beneath the surface of my life just as it's working beneath the surface of yours. And I love what he says. He says, keep on praying. It's almost like, man, if nothing else, pray. The reality is the last resort should be our first response. That from the very get-go in any relationship, whether it's a good relationship or a struggling relationship, we lay it at the feet of Jesus. We lay it at the feet of the King. Then in verse 13, he says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Here he links the treatment of insiders, people who are followers of Jesus, with outsiders, people who are far from God. He says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help. That's talking about how we interact and treat one another. Are we willing to open our homes, to open our lives, to lower ourselves to serve, to do things for others here as needs arise? And then the word for hospitality means the love of, of a stranger. It's talking about outsiders. We open our homes in hospitality to show that we love people who are far from God. That's why we did Church in Your Street last weekend. That's what that was all about, was to create space for you and I to be able to tangibly express the love of Jesus to those who may be far from him. And so for these first few verses, we're, we're tracking, like, like this, this all makes sense. But then verse 14, he casts a wider net, and he's going to talk about some things that are a little bit more difficult when it comes to practicing genuine love. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Who's glad they read that verse this morning? I'm not. And in fact, to give me a minute to compose myself, we're going to look at verses 15 and 16, because I want to talk about 14 and 17 to 19 together. So verse 15 and 16, he just gives a couple of practical things to, to live out love in relationships, whether they're good relationships or struggling relationships. Verse 15, he says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who are weak. You know, I, I love how God sets a bar, but so many times he sets a bar that is so ridiculously low. He says, all I'm asking you to do is just be happy when other people are happy. Like rejoice when other people rejoice. Like really what he's saying is, is when something good happens to someone else, just don't be a jerk about it, right? Be happy when other people are happy. Like when people are celebrating, it's okay for you to celebrate too. When someone gets a promotion, don't think about, I wish I had a promotion. When someone has a, something happen in their, in their home for their family, don't be like, I wish that happened to my family. No, he says, just be happy when other people are happy because that's what genuine love does. And weep with those who weep. Do we sit in grief with each other? And I think the ultimate cop-out in the church community is I'll pray for you. We say that to people all the time. And I, I, I've, I've told many people in here, I'll pray for you, but I, I hope that when I say I pray for you, that actually means and you understand that there's, there are tangible expressions of that that also come with that. Now, I'll, I'll pray for you. How many of us have told someone that we'll pray for and we never even prayed for them? We didn't even do the one little thing we do. We said we do. 
And I've, I've done my share of that where I'm like, man, I hope somebody else remembered because I forgot. We tell him we'll pray for you. But he says, weep with those who weep. Show up. Be present. Make a meal. Watch their kids. Share a drink with them. Because that's what love does. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they would do it for you or not. And then verse 16, he says, live in harmony with each other. It just says, get along. Like, live, as much as possible, live in harmony. Like, do everything you can to not make it difficult for other people to love you. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. You're not as smart as you think you are. We're not as great as we think we are. Just enjoy the company of ordinary people because newsflash, that's what all of us are, right? So he says, just, just, just be present. And then verse 17. So now I want to talk about 14, but then also 17 through 19 together. Verse 17. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. All right, so let's step back to verse 14 for a second. What's he say? He says, bless those who persecute you. The, the word bless, think eulogy. It's to speak well of. So now I've got to speak well of people who hurt me. I'm not loving that. Don't curse them. I could kind of get on board with that one, but then pray that God would bless them. If, if you hurt me, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that God would expose you, that God would punish you, that you would suffer. I'm certainly not praying that God would bless you. Like, doesn't, it, doesn't it create some tension? Then, then, he, then he says in verse 17, don't pay back evil with more evil. When someone hurts you, don't, don't retaliate. And, and, and it creates some, some tension for us. Never return evil for evil. I'm not gonna lie, that's not how I was raised. My, mo my mom and dad always taught me, we don't get even, we get ahead. Like you hurt me once, I hurt you twice. Like you start it, but I'm gonna finish it. And what we, what we were always taught, what we were always raised to believe was, was to not finish it actually was a sign that you were weak. So especially for the, for the men in the room, there's, there's an element of this for us to go, man, like it just makes us look weak. Man, we're, we're speaking well of people who've hurt us, asking God to bless them, and then we can't even get them back. This just doesn't seem to be fair. This doesn't seem possible. But what Paul is saying here is that when we return evil for evil, we don't defeat evil. We feed it and we empower it. Evil for evil, evil for evil never solves anything. In fact, it just escalates it. And I get it. You may be here and you say, man, if you knew what I experienced if you knew what they did, if you knew how much they made me suffer, you wouldn't say that. And from a purely human perspective, you may be right. In fact, if I knew your story, I might tell you to grab the baseball bat and I'll drive the car. Like, because they should suffer, right? Like, it just, it just makes sense. 
But what would that solve? Like, would that fix your pain? Like, what is retaliation? What is revenge ever fixed? When has two wrongs ever really made something right? Dr. King used to say that an eye for an eye just leaves everybody blind. It's also been said that when you seek revenge, you might as well dig two graves, one for them and one for you. Now listen, when I talk about revenge, I want to make sure we understand. I'm not talking about justice. Revenge and justice are two different things. We are told often throughout Scripture to fight for and to seek justice. Justice, the difference between justice and revenge, the way I would articulate it, is that justice looks to restore and revenge looks to inflict pain. Justice seeks to make things right and revenge seeks to make people suffer. So you got to ask yourself this question, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it, and even those you're walking in community with, ask them. Like, in my heart, am I seeking to make it right? Or am I just hoping to make them hurt because they made me hurt? So we're told to seek justice, but he tells us here we're not to seek revenge. We're not to seek to inflict pain just because we've experienced it. Behavioral scientists have observed when it comes to revenge that instead of quenching hostility, it actually prolongs the unpleasantness of the original offense. Because if you think about it, when, when, you, when pain is inflicted on you and you retaliate, all of your focus moves to retaliation. All of your focus shifts to anger. But what's happened with the pain over here? Nothing. You, you, haven't, you haven't dismissed it. You've just deferred it. And when all of a sudden all of this is, is, is gone, you're still left with pain that you haven't dealt with. They, they've said, these behavioral scientists, that merely bringing harm upon an offender they've discovered is not enough to satisfy a person's ven vengeful spirit. It doesn't solve anything. You know, I've never met a person that sought vengeance and 10 years later looked back and said, best decision I ever made was retaliating. But I could give you dozens of people who presented with retaliation, chose not to, and years later they would look back and tell you that they've never regretted the fact that they didn't seek revenge when the opportunity was presented to him. You see, God knows the injustice that we've experienced. You know, the pain. He knows the pain and the suffering that others have inflicted on us. And he says, give it to me because I will exact revenge when he sees fit and as he sees fit. But he also knows the hunger that you and I have for revenge, to retaliate against people who've hurt us. And he knows that in reality, it's only hurting us. So he says, give it to me. You say, well, if I can't seek revenge, then what can I do? One well, verse 20, and I'll just warn you right up front, you're not going to like it. <clears throat> verse 20, he says, instead... If your enemies are hungry, feed them. I'm like, man, we should have just stopped reading. Like, let's pray and go home. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. 
In doing so, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Now you're talking. So I can push him into a burning building. I'm tracking. All right, I'm glad we kept reading. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So he says, instead of returning fire for fire, instead of lashing out at someone who hurt you, instead of making them suffer, instead of hurting them or even running from them, we run toward them. And not with clenched fists, we run towards them with open hands because that's what the gospel has done for us. That Jesus didn't run from us, he ran towards us. So he says, feed them, give them something to drink, serve them with a nothing beneath me mentality. If you remember back to the definition we gave of love, we said love is a willful, selfless decision to act, to show good to those around us, regardless of how we feel or how they act. I can love you while struggling with feelings of, of hurt in that relationship. I can feed someone. I can give someone something to drink without feeling all the, the warm, fuzzy things that, that we want to feel. But then he says, in doing so, we heap coals of, of fire on their heads, which kind of seems out of context for, uh, for the rest of the passage, right? So what's he talking about? It's actually an old Egyptian custom. So as a sign of, of public contrition, someone would put a cloth on their head and they would put a pan in that cloth and they would put burning coals in there. It was symbolic of guilt and shame. It was a way of saying, I acknowledge and I'm sorry for what I've done. And so he says, when we do good, when we feed them, when we give them something to drink, whatever tangibly that looks like, when we do that, we heap these coals of fire on their heads. And in essence, when we do that, what we've done is we've brought shame and embarrassment on them. Not, that's not the goal, but that's the outcome. Because you think about it. Think about a relationship right now that maybe there's tension what, do you, what happens if all of a sudden that person comes to you and lovingly maybe apologizes? Someone you're at odds with? Maybe they do something kind for you? Doesn't it just kind of soften our heart? Like Proverbs 15 says, a soft answer turns away wrath. I was recently running in our, our neighborhood and I was, was about... Uh, 5, 5.30 in the morning and um, running through one of the cul-de-sacs. I see this guy come out and get in his car and start up his car and I'm like, that idiot is going to back into me when I'm running around the cul-de-sac. Like, I know it's going to happen. So knowing me, I don't do anything preemptively uh, to keep him out of that situation. I run and run right by his car as he's backing up and he sees me at the last second and slams, slams on the brakes. And I give him, you know, the look as I'm, I'm running by to make sure he knows what he had done and then I'm running down this, the, the straight of, straightway of the street, and as I'm running, you know, he's driving up behind me, and I can hear him slowing down, and I'm like, oh, it's about to be on. You don't want to mess with me at five in the morning, especially when I'm running. And so I've got a rant loaded, and it is ready to go. And as I look over, his window's down, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good. And he goes, my, he goes, man, I'm so sorry. And I was like, don't be sorry yet. Like, I got this whole, what am I going to do with this rant? 
And I mean, I was like this, and he's like, man, I'm so sorry. I should have seen you, and I didn't. And I was like, all right, man, have a good day, you know. But what happened is his response immediately just diffused the whole thing. And I felt really stupid. And that's what happens. Like, that's not the goal. We don't go, man, I'm going to serve people that I'm at odds with just so they'll feel stupid. But the reality is those expressions of love, those expressions of the gospel oftentimes will melt the hardened heart. And our response to those that we love, to those that we like, as well as to those that are enemies and those that we don't like is the same. That in love, we serve them. And in obedience, we, we, release our, we release our need to get even to God. Will you bow your heads with me? I'll have you stand. I know when you, when, anytime we cover a passage like this, it, it creates tension. It creates tension for me. Sure, it creates tension for Uh, For a lot of you here, you know, I found myself this week asking the question in all of my relationships, you know, he talks about being honorable. Have I been honorable? Is there something different that I can do, that I should do, that I should have done? Is there something that I should acknowledge? And so it creates this tension. And so this morning, what about this passage is creating tension in your heart? So let the Holy Spirit shine a light on it. Let me talk about this before. The way conviction works is conviction, the Holy Spirit shines a light on what's broken in our lives. Then he shines a light and shows us what it looks like to become more like Jesus. So what about this passage is troubling to you, is creating tension? What is it exposing? What is it revealing? And then what is the next thing that you need to say yes to in this process to become more like Jesus? You see, the conflict you're feeling and experiencing, you may not be able to fix that overnight. But what's the next step? What's the next yes? And I want to encourage you and challenge you Uh, to take that. Jesus, we pray right now that you and your your tender grace and mercy would uh, deal graciously with us as you always do. That you would lovingly shine a light on what is broken in our lives, what is broken in our minds, what's broken in our thought patterns. And you'd show us what it looks like to become Jesus more like you. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. And Jesus, it's in your name. Amen.